Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation the big sound No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. We have a two-part show today. In the second part, we'll be talking about a very bad, very sudden development to do with our airport and PFAS. But we are starting today with um, a summary of what did and didn't happen at COP28, the 28th Conference of the Parties. And uh, with us to discuss it is Courtney Federico, a senior policy analyst on the energy and environmental team at American Progress. Courtney was at um, COP for uh, four days. Thank you, Courtney, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So um, looking back, what was achieved and what wasn't at COP28? Yes, that's a big question. COP28 uh, concluded on December 13th after about two weeks of negotiations and climate talks and was attended by over 190 countries, nearly every country in the world. So any outcome from a COP, and as you mentioned, this was the 28th convening of this kind, 28th United Nations Conference of the Parties, any outcome is a consensus document. So that means that theoretically all of the parties that are attending this uh, climate talk should agree about whatever is decided at the culmination of the conference. And so what was produced at this COP, at COP28, um, was the outcome of what's called the first global stock take. And what that is, is uh, the first time that the world has come together to assess progress toward achieving the goals outlined in the Paris Agreement, which was created at COP21 in 2015. And so the main goals of the Paris Agreement are to limit global temperature rise to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels with the aim of keeping that limiting, keeping that warming limited to one and a half degrees Celsius. And so that uh, is hoped to be achieved through achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And so all of the nations came together for COP28 in Dubai to discuss how close are we achieving those goals? Are we on track to achieve those goals? And if not, how do we course correct in order to achieve those goals? So the document, the consensus document that came out of those conversations was historic and does mark significant progress. It is historic because for the first time, the words fossil fuels were included in a document coming out of COP and one of the agreements coming out of COP. And so that in itself is historic. It names the problem, fossil fuels contributing to climate change. But it also commits all parties and the over 190 nations that participated in these talks to transitioning away from fossil fuels. So that is significant progress and when enacted and implemented will have an impact on emissions, which of course is what drives uh, global temperature rise. So the fact that this was achieved and that all parties, theoretically all parties agreed to this, including oil producing nations like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates who hosted the talks, this is pretty uh, significant progress. I will note though that while this is considered a consensus document, there are many nations that are unhappy with where the language 
came out in this final agreement. More than 100 nations were pushing for much more aggressive, ambitious language, calling for the full phase out of fossil fuels. And when this final agreement was adopted, there a, co- a coalition of small island states was not in the room. And so when they learned what had happened and they they voiced you know, that they were upset that the language was not more ambitious. And these are the nations that are on the front lines of climate change. They are impacted today by sea level rise and they require much more ambitious, sweeping, urgent action in order to save their homes. So it is entirely justifiable that they are upset with where the language landed and that it was more incremental change as a sweeping change. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you mentioned that there's um, language about transitioning away, but there was no language of phasing out fossil fuels. Is that correct? And, and, and what's, um, what's the, why is that important? Transitioning away from fossil fuels and the language says in energy systems is much more incremental than a full phase out of fossil fuels. A full phase out would mean that starting today, we are moving away from fossil fuels completely um, across all sectors as well. What's outlined in the um, final agreement coming out of COP28 is focused specifically on the energy sector. And it's also much more vague language transitioning away. There's no timeline attached to that. So arguments from folks who are criticizing this final agreement say that there uh, is room for bad actors to exploit these loopholes because it is not more specific, more ambitious language. So yes, it, it does not call for a full phase out, which more than 100 countries were pushing for at COP28. And so it fell short of that language. Uh, and instead, calls for something much more general, ambiguous, and transitioning away from fossil fuels. Yeah, so that that is significant. And, uh, of course, the conference, I think everybody knows, was hosted by Sultan Ahmed al-Jaber, who um, had been planning to use COP28 meetings to strike deals for the UAE state oil company, which he um, heads. And so, first of all, did he? And secondly, at about the same time that COP28 was happening, Shell announced that it's going to keep oil production steady this decade, um, which uh, marks a change from two years ago when the company said it would cut oil production by 1% to 2% every year until 2030. I imagine Shell is not the only one. So in in light of these two facts, um, yeah, what, um, again, what can we expect, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Well, to touch on your first point, I think you are totally right, and it should not be understated the role that the fossil fuel industry had in COP28. Um, You mentioned that the UAE was the host. They are an oil producing nation. They are a member of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. OPEC controls about 80% of the world's known crude oil reserves. So clearly a conflict of interest. The president of COP28, Sultan Al-Jaber, he is, as you said, the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. From the beginning, with the UAE being named the host country, from Sultan al-Jaber being named the president, there were concerns about conflict of interest. There were calls for Sultan al-Jaber's removal early on when he was announced. And many people were upset that an oil executive would be overseeing and conducting climate talks at the most... Uh, important convening, climate convening of the year. And then a number of missteps and scandals took place that I think cemented and confirmed many people's fears. As you mentioned, there were documents leaked that showed that Sultan al-Jaber had planned to leverage his position to strike oil and gas deals. Whether or not those deals came to fruition is unclear, Um, but he faced 
significant criticism backlash as a result of that. And then while the conference was going on, he also, it was reported in the press that in a November uh, event that he was a part of, he said that there was, quote, no science, unquote, indicating that a phase out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global temperature rise to one and a half degrees Celsius, which, as I mentioned, is the goal of the Paris Agreement. And so he again came under fire for that. Um, he had to hold a press conference uh, to try to repair his credibility. So I think a lot of the fears about the conflict of interest came, came to be true. I'll also note that there were more fossil fuel lobbyists at COP28 than there ever have been before. The one analysis puts the number at 2,400, which is four times the number of lobbyists that were at COP27 last year in Egypt. Um, and OPEC, as I mentioned, the, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they actually had a presence at COP28. I actually saw with my own eyes their pavilion, they were hosting events. So it cannot be understated the heavy hand of the fossil fuel industry at COP28. I think the fact that the language to transition away from fossil fuels was still included in the final uh, consensus document is maybe even more impressive because of this heavy influence from the fossil fuel industry. During negotiations, there was a point when people thought you know, Saudi Arabia was working hard to keep those words even out of the final agreement. So where we landed, while I think there, of course, was room to be much more ambitious, it is still progress. And I think we should, um, you know, note that. And of course, now is the time to act upon these words. But it is still important that those words were included and that the nations uh, were able to come to an agreement on that language. As far as oil and, and shell continuing production, I think it's hard to say. I think it's all driven by demand ultimately. And I think I've seen projections that oil demand is meant to peak this decade. And this decade is a really critical time for um, us to address climate change, for us to pull back emissions um, before um, things really get away from us. So. I'll be interested to see if what Shell has said remains true throughout the rest of the decade. Uh, but I think as people opt for more clean energy technology, whether that's electric vehicles or something else, and demand will take a hit and we will see how these corporations will adjust. Yeah, so in that vein, uh, nearly 120 nations pledged to triple the output of renewable energy on the planet by 2030. And uh, European Commission President Ursula von, von der Leyen, um, along with the rest of them, including uh, Sultan al-Jaber, um, launched the Global Ple Pledge on Renewable and Energy efficiently, Efficiency. Um, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds g really good. Um, how much should we believe this? And if so, how much of a difference will it make? That's a good question. I think that in the, so in the final agreement, it was all nations did agree to triple renewable energy capacity, global energy capacity by 2030, as you said, and they all committed to doubling the global rate of energy efficiency also by 2030. I think, of course, demand for energy can increase. And so by saying that tripling renewable energy or increasing energy efficiency, it doesn't automatically mean that they will replace fossil fuels because they can also be used to make up increased demand. But I do think the language, pairing the language of transitioning away from fossil fuels with the intent to increase renewable energy capacity to increase energy efficiency, that gives nations a clear um, kind of roadmap for how to go about reducing emissions. And it is made very clear in this document that that is done through reducing fossil fuel usage and through implementing and, um, you know, incentivizing increasing usage of these clean energy technologies. So, 
this is, of course, a, a document, and I think it is significant and it shows progress, but it must be acted upon. So as I mentioned, a concern of the small island states is that this language is vague and it can be exploited by bad actors. So it is really up to every nation to take this document um, and recognize the intent and to act upon that intent, which is to rein in global emissions and to do so quickly within this decade um, in order to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Mm-hmm. My guest is Courtney Federico. She is a senior policy analyst on the energy and environment team at American Progress. She's here with us only for half of the show. If you have questions or comments, you want to let us know about them right now. 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can join us on social media at War Talk on X or a public affair on um, Facebook. So um, one thing that seemed significant, and it was early in the conference, was the establishment of a loss and damage fund, uh, which I'll ask you in a moment to explain what that is. But I also want to note that the U.S. pledged $17 million <laughs> to help developing countries adapt and mitigate climate change at the same time that it pledged $14.3 billion in weapons to Israel, in addition to many other billions that have, have already been given, and uh, hundreds of billions to the U.S. military. So the question is just how serious are they? It seems like they're just throwing, like tiny crumbs um, towards the nations that are really, really affected by what what happens in this country, among others. And also, um, war is a terrible thing for the environment and for climate. Um, if you want to talk about that... Um, like the war that's going on right now, you know, or, you know, the attack of Israel on Gaza. So, yes, the loss and damage fund, I'll start by explaining what that is. It is a fund in which well-resourced nations pay into to help less well-resourced nations that are climate vulnerable essentially rebuild their economies after climate-fueled disasters. So there's something called adaptation, and that is um, work that nations can undertake in order to increase resilience to climate impacts. Um, and I think a lot of adaptation work is for you know the problems and climate impacts of today and also the future. But loss and damage is meant to fund uh, the rebuilding of disasters that have already taken place. So ensuring that essentially the developed world with resources, as you mentioned, um, have fueled the climate crisis through uh, the release of emissions. Um, this is a way for them to support the rest of the world in the most vulnerable nations that have already suffered from climate change in rebuilding and being able to uh, you know, participate in, in the clean energy economy. So that is the loss and damage fund. And the fact that this was established and uh, nations pledged to uh, contribute to the loss and damage fund on day one of COP28 really sent a signal that the nations of the world were coming together for this climate conference, ready to collaborate, to work together, to negotiate in order to uh, address the climate crisis head on. So I do think that that set an excellent tone for the conference from day one, also because over the course of the last year, this has been an incredibly contentious topic. Coming out of COP27 in Egypt, um, nations had decided that they were going to work to figure this out over the course of the year for it to be established by the time of COP28. And so over the course of the year, there was a lot of back and forth about 
how the fund, uh, you know, where it would be housed and who would pay into it and things like that. So the fact that they were able to get it established on day one, that nations pledged money to this loss and damage fund uh, was important, was a victory. Could the U.S. have pledged more money? Absolutely. I think you're totally right. 17 million is quite low compared to other developed nations. Um, I will mention that one finance announcement that came out of the U.S. Um, happened when Vice President Harris was in Dubai for the conference, and she announced that the U.S. was making a second pledge to what's called the Green Climate Fund, which is the world's largest climate fund, and it is meant to uh, for well-resourced nations to pay into to help climate vulnerable, less well-resourced nations adapt uh, and build resilience to climate impacts while also transitioning their economy um, to a clean energy economy uh, in order to reduce their emissions. So the United States pledged $3 billion to uh, the Green Climate Fund, and that was also announced during COP. So I think, you know, just looking at those two pledges, 3 billion versus 17 million, there's a huge disparity there. Uh, but that's also a reminder that the United States works to uh, put money toward this effort in multiple ways. And those are just two multilateral funds. Uh, there is also a country to country work that happens that the U.S. does. Um, so the U.S. is trying to approach this from a number of different angles. Um, I'll also note that the Green Climate Fund, any money that moves to these funds is meant to be appropriated through Congress. We know that uh, we've seen the speaker fights happening. We know that the House has had some struggles this year, the Republican-controlled House. So being able to appropriate climate finance is also a challenge and something I think that the Biden administration is likely thinking about when they make these pledges. So. I hope that 17 million is the floor, not the ceiling, and that this continues to increase. Um, but as you mentioned, the U.S. is putting a lot of money elsewhere. I think it is no secret that the U.S. has always poured significant amounts of money into defense, um, in this case, supporting our allies in their defense. Um, and I think there is work being done and more work that can be done to think about climate change, you know, as a threat multiplier and as a strategy in our defense strategy. And you could argue that more money should be put toward climate change because of that. Um, and I hope to see that shift happen. I think it's those conversations are beginning. We could certainly move more quickly. Um, but I think that that, um, you know, is something that we're kind of at the beginning stages of. In incorporating climate change into security strategy and planning, uh, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, it's um, amazing to me that I think I have never seen wars um, figured as part of the reports about climate change. And of course, wars demand so much fossil fuels and um, ends up with so much um, destruction and pollution, you know, depleted uranium, white phosphorus, lead. Surely the wars that we're having right now, which are serious, especially the one by Israel because of the amount of bombing, um, surely they contribute to... To, to climate change, not just to polluting our planet. And yet it is something that the United States and others are um, supporting and continuing to do and launch and so on. Um, what, how, how can we add it to the equation, to something that we talk about when we talk about climate change? That's a good question, and I, I wish I had an answer that would, um, you know, be powerful enough to move decision makers. I think that war, of course, as you mentioned, there are so many emissions that result from war, but even um, deterrence strategies, I think 
what the U.S., you know, the war games that are conducted uh, around Taiwan, you know, as a deterrent strategy with China, there are even emissions associated with that. So I think it's challenging when it comes to security, of course. I don't know if there is appetite to um, to cut back, to be willing to explore alternative technology like battery power, you know, battery powered tech <laughs> and what that would even look like. You know, there are security uh, concerns there with anything that's electrified. Could um, the grid be compromised? You know, there are so many things to take into account, but I do think, you know, I know that this is something that the Department of Defense thinks about, the impact of climate change, specifically on their operations and what that means for their bases around the world. So, you know, the conversations are starting. They need to accelerate given how urgent the climate crisis is. But unfortunately, I don't know what what the silver bullet is you know, to get folks who are thinking about defense and security to be willing to have the conversation about how war is also driving the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, so related, and this will be our last question here, and it's to you as um, as the person that you are, the senior analyst, and also to you as a young person, Um Do you think that the fight to avert the worst of climate change succeed can happen without full-on systemic change? And and if it's the latter, um, I'm sure we can talk about that for three hours, but, you know, in, in a few sentences, what do we need to do? It's a great question. There's so much to be done. Uh, I do think systemic change is, is necessary. I think we are in a place where we're rethinking just about everything, you know, how our trade system works, what we just discussed, how nations conduct war and think about their security. These are all systems that are going to have to undergo significant change, either to put off the climate crisis or to deal with the onset of whatever is to come if we exceed the uh, temperature limits that we have outlined for ourselves to stay within the one and a half degrees Celsius. So I do think systemic change is necessary. I hope that it is beginning. I think we are seeing a number of promising signs. I, again, do believe that what happened at COP28 is promising. I think things that are happening here in the United States domestically, like the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, These are all steps that are moving us in the right direction. So I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't think there was hope. So I do believe that. I think uh, that's important for um, me to be able to get up and do this work every day. Uh, And I thankfully work with a number of very passionate, very intelligent people who are putting their minds to this problem as well. So I think we will get there, but we are not there yet. And there is quite a bit of work to be done. Yeah, I think this entire conversation has been marked with, um, yes, there's some progress, but no, it's not enough. Yeah. So anyway, thank you very much, uh, Courtney Federico, Senior Policy Analyst on the Energy and Environment Team at American Progress. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Bye. And uh, with us now is Emily Park. She's the co-executive director of 350 Wisconsin, which is a grassroots climate justice organization. She organizes around issues related to climate justice, fossil fuel resistance, energy equity, water and air quality, and just sustainable food system. Thank you, um, Emily, for joining us. The Dane County Board of Supervisors will be voting on December 18 and December 21 on a joint use agreement for the National Guard to use Truex Field. I understand that's something that happens every few years, but this one is very different. What, what does the agreement say? 
Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for having me on, Esty. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, so this joint use agreement is um, uh, an agreement that comes up every 10 years uh, for the National Guard's use of Truex Field, where the, Ma the Dane County Airport is. Uh, this is the first time that this joint use agreement is coming up before the Dane County Board of Supervisors since the extent of PFAS contamination was found in 2018. And so PFAS um, chemicals are also referred to as forever chemicals are um, chemicals that are found in so many different industrial substances, including firefighting foam and other things. And um, the National Guard has already contaminated Dane County's waters, uh, so surface water, lake streams, our drinking water and our soil with these PFOS chemicals. Um, and these chemicals are known to cause um, birth defects, growth deficiencies, they can cause cancer, um, and that's in, in humans, of course, particularly small children, uh, but also animals, so pets, wildlife, etc. So as I said, it's in the water and it's in the soil. And um, Dane County and the city of Madison are having to pay millions of dollars to clean up this contamination. Um, and in the joint use agreement, there is a clause that basically makes it so the National Guard is not liable to pay for any cleanup of future PFOS contamination in Dane County. And essentially this would leave the, the taxpayers of Dane County with the bill for cleaning up the water. So uh, essentially in this case, that would mean that the National Guard could be free to pollute our water and our, our soil and the, the Dane County would then have to pay uh, to to fix that. So that would be hundreds of millions of dollars or the people of Dane County would have to drink possibly cancer causing water or we would have to have bottled water shipped in from, from other locations. So all of these are terrible options and we would like the, the Dane County Board of Supervisors to delay a vote on this joint use agreement until that clause can be removed. Yeah. Why why would the county board accept such an agreement? So the, the county board is essentially afraid that if the the, the clause was removed, um, that the National Guard would pull its firefighting services from the Dane County Airport. Uh, so currently the, the National Guard provides firefighting services at the Dane County Airport, and that is, of course, a, a federal requirement. So without their firefighting services, the, the FAA would be forced to shut the Dane County, County Airport down. Uh, and of course, you know, Dane County or City of Madison could come up with its own firefighting services, but to put that into place would take uh, probably at least three years. And mm. uh, the, the National Guard, if this clause were removed, would remove its firefighting services within one year. So that would leave us a gap of, of two years with, with no airport, which is not a viable solution for the people of Dane County. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so Governor Evers, isn't he the commander in chief of the Wisconsin National Guard? And if I'm correct on that, um, what's he doing? So right now, what we are focusing on is just getting the Dane County board to delay the vote because the, the first vote is coming up before the personnel and finance committee of Dane County on Monday, the 18th. So just a few days from now. And then if it passes that committee, it would go up to the full board on December 21st. And if we can get them to delay a vote on this joint, joint um, use agreement, then we are going to be putting pressure on Commander on Governor Evers, who, as you said, is the Commander-in-Chief of the Wisconsin National Guard. And as Commander-in-Chief of the National Guard, he could step in and, and commit that the National Guard would provide firefighting services for Dane County for as long as it took for either Dane County or the city of Madison to come up with a firefighting service for the airport. So Governor Evers has, has that ability to, uh, to put that promise into place, which would then um, remove the, the Dane County supervisors from what is essentially almost a, a position of being bullied, held hostage to this threat of losing our airport. Mm -hmm. So um, if the airport were to close, for three years or whatever, and that they, therefore maybe forever, um, would that mean that the F-35s are also um, not flying or, or 
is the National Guard still able to um, to continue uh, their part of the airport um, to work? Do you know? Yes. Yeah, so my understanding is that if the National Guard were to pull its firefighting services, it would be from the Dane County Airport side. So they, you know, the commercial jets, the, the passenger flights that the people of Dane County depend on, um, and that they would focus their firefighting solely on the, their, their aircraft. Um, but, you know, it's, the, the F-35s, of course, have been a, a controversial issue here, here in the Madison community. But one thing we're trying to really emphasize with this current joint use agreement is this is a, an issue that goes beyond the F-35s. It's, it's much, it's much um, more all-encompassing. It's, essentially, it's, if you drink water and you live in Dane County and you pay taxes in Dane County or do any kind of business in Dane County, this is an issue that's relevant to you because it's, it's down to are you drinking water that is safe to consume, that is not going to make you sick? And are you, as a county taxpayer, going to be the one paying for someone else's pollution. Again, this is, this is hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, there's one well in Madison that's already contaminated. Uh, so well 15 has been shut down since 2018. Uh, it's you know now the end of 2023. So that's, that's five years that that well has not been operational. So putting these filtration services in place is not a fast process. And it's something like um, six million several million dollars a year, or sorry, six million to put the filtration system in to fix that well. And there's 22 municipal wells in Madison. So imagine if we had to put that PFAS filtering station in all of those wells. That's a lot of money. And we don't know where that would come out of the Dane County budget. Would that mean a tax increase? Would that mean critical services elsewhere were cut? And of course, that's not even counting the, the financial cost of, of health effects. Um, how that would, you know, impact households and communities. So, uh, you know, this this PFAS water issue is, um, you know, it's 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 on the it's on the National Guard to act responsibly. It's on the Dane County Board to protect the people of the county. Um, so it's it is a slightly separate issue from the the F thirty five. Yeah. Well, there's something very ironic, I think, about the fact that uh, Madison is growing incrementally nowadays, it seems. And uh, at the same time, there's that threat of making all the drinkable water here um, just not drinkable anymore and um, destroying our um, natural uh, beauty resources. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, again, it's I. I think that the 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 Dane County Board of Supervisors. I think that they want to do the right thing and act in the interest of of the people, but they are being bullied and held hostage by by the National Guard. And uh, I think the National Guard knows how much, as you said, our growing community needs needs this airport uh, for just the people, for our economy, you know, as the capital uh, of the state. Um, it's, it's it's critical to our our community. Uh, so, and I, the National Guard is well aware that this is a powerful uh, bargaining chip they hold. Yeah. My guest is Emily Park. She is the co-executive director of 350 Wisconsin. And we're talking about this uh, surprising and disturbing new development. If you'd like to join the conversation, 608-256-2001, extension 1, or you can join us on social media. Why are we learning about this not even a week or, you know, a week before it comes to vote? What, how is that possible? Uh, so I only found out about this issue about a month ago when it was actually on the November agenda for the Dane County Board. And uh, again, I found out then just a few days before the vote. And so we as 350 Wisconsin... Um, you know, we are, of course, first and foremost, a climate justice group, but central to our mission is making sure that we have a 
sustainable future for everyone to thrive. And so that includes safe drinking water, safe air, etc. So we we mobilized uh, our community to contact the board of supervisors and say, look, this is an issue that the public needs to be able to weigh in on. This is an issue that people care about, and you can't rush this. You need to delay the vote so that we have time for public input and so that we have time for the county to do its due diligence. Um, so we we got enough letters written into the supervisors that they were that they agreed to delay or they voted to delay uh, uh, the joint use agreement. And but now it's up again on the December uh, the December agenda. Um, so if it if the uh, the personnel and finance committee, which meets on Monday, if they vote to delay it, then that gives us until January to put some pressure on Governor Evers and also generate more uh, public outcry about this. Um, and then if it if it passes through the joint uh, the personnel and finance committee, then it goes to the full board next Thursday. Um, and of course, that's that's more people on the full board, so that's it'd be harder to guarantee a vote in our our favor. So we're we're, we're hoping that on Monday, the Personnel and Finance Committee votes to delay, um, and that will buy us time to, to really generate the, the public um, outcry we need. Because, again, at the end of the day, this is a question of, uh, of fairness for Dane County taxpayers and public health. Uh, so it's, this is really about as all-encompassing of an issue as, as I can think of in terms of uniting people under a common cause. Yeah. Well, we know that um, some elected officials listen to the show. If um, anyone who is on the county board is listening, we would very much welcome hearing from you at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Of course, anyone else is invited to join us too. Emily, what are you calling on people to do and how can they do it? I would really love it if as many people as possible would email the Dane County Board of Supervisors and say, I have heard about this issue and I'm concerned about PFOS and our water. I'm concerned about Dane County taking on this bill and I urge you to delay approving, delay the vote on the joint use agreement until next month or until we've had enough time again for the county to do its due diligence. So um, a group of concerned individuals, communities, and organizations in Dane County have formed uh, an alliance that we've, we're calling the Dane County PFOS Fight for Fairness Alliance. And our website is fightforfairness.us. And if you visit that website, there is a way that you can um, submit a comment to the Dane County Board of Supervisors uh, that we have some, some talking points written out. And then you could, of course, modify it however you want makes it super easy. So again, that's fightforfairness.us. Um, that I, I really urge anybody to take that action. It'll take you no more than a, a minute or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have Irene on the line. Hi, Irene. Hi. Yes. Hi there. Uh, Go ahead. So my my question is: Was this clause in the previous document that was signed, like you know, two or three years ago? I mean, has this something that's always been in there and we're just paying attention to it now and then if the clause is dropped who's to say the national guard is actually going to do any cleanup i mean haven't they been asked already to help clean up pfas and nothing's happened yeah great questions i mean thanks yeah emily um i'm sorry to say i don't know the answer to your first question whether this clause was in the uh the previous agreement but um, if the clause were to be removed this time around, it would at least give the county and the city the option to sue the National Guard and the federal government to clean up the, the PFOS contamination. With, with the clause in there, we have really no choice but to pay for it ourselves or just deal with having uh, cancer-causing water. So it's um, ultimately what we would really like the National Guard to do is, is stop using firefighting chemicals that contain PFOS. Uh, most firefighting chemicals do contain PFOS, but there are alternatives out there that don't contain these chemicals. So ultimately what we would like to see is a change in just the products they're using. Um, they have been resistant to that, um, saying that it's not cost effective, but the cost of using these firefighting chemicals would without the PFOS would still be less than the cost of cleaning up a whole county's worth of water plus the cost of the the health impacts that would happen. 
Yeah. So I think you said um, earlier that um, we've learned about the extent of uh, PFAS contamination relatively recently, and that's probably why it, I'm assuming, wasn't in uh, previous joint agreements. Is, is that correct, do you think? Yeah, again, I, I don't really, um, I can't really speak to what was in the, the previous version of the agreement, but the the extent, or sorry, the existence of PFAS in Dane County's water was discovered back in 2018. And even today, we aren't, you know, 100% certain of exactly how bad the problem is. I mean, we know that Well 15, which if you're not familiar with that, is um, on the east side of Madison, um, just along East Washington. We know that that well has been closed for five years, and we know that there are traces of PFAS in other wells and in our soil and our, our lakes and our, our streams, particularly uh, on the east side nearest to the airport. Um, so, you know, we're still, we're still discovering PFAS in places, and that's, that's already alarming enough, not considering the uh, possibility of having even more of it in the water. Yeah. Um, what would be the scenario if um, if they continue using PFAS regularly? Um, where are we heading? I mean, worst case scenario, we have to close down more of our drinking water wells. Uh, that would, um, of course, limit the availability of water to the people of Madison. So we would have to bring in bottled water from outside of the county, um, which would be you know, A, expensive and inefficient, but also I think the people of, of Madison are generally conscious about their, their plastic consumption, things like that. So it's, that's a terrible idea in many ways. Uh, if you are a Dane County business that relies on clean water, so if you are a restaurant, food producer, whatever, that will absolutely definitely impact your, your bottom line. Um, it, it could impact uh, tourism. I mean, I think the lakes are... A draw to our city it's something you know there's something we're very proud of as a as a, a county and then of course as i said well 15 has been closed for for five years so how long would it take to put in filtration systems in all 22 municipal wells uh it's it's it would take years and years and years plus at least six million per well and again that's still not counting the public health costs, the, the, the wider costs, the economy. And the question we keep coming back around to is where would this money come from? I don't think Dane County just has hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around just not spoken for. So would this mean a massive tax increase for the people of Dane County, uh, which of course would be felt the most by the people who can least afford uh, to have a tax bill increase? Or would this be coming out of uh, funding for critical programs and services that the Dane County um, government is already working on. I know the Dane County government is doing great things on the climate and environment front. Um, you know, we heard a little bit about, you know, stuff happening globally from the previous guest here, but Dane County itself is doing great things. And I would absolutely be devastated to see their budget cut. Um, and then, of course, that's just a sliver of the other services that the county provides. Yeah. Is the National Guard engaging also in um, some sort of propaganda or are they just at this point anyway leaning on our supervisors and threatening them? So if you um, if listeners were interested in this and go back to um, the November recordings of some of the Dane County meetings, that is where. um, Dane County Airport staff were relaying from the National Guard this this implicit threat to take away firefighting services. Um, and so the the Dane County Airport staff are alarmed at this, and then they ha- now have the Board of Supervisors alarmed. Um, the The Dane County Airport does not seem to have a firm grasp on how much it would cost to set up its own firefighting services. Um, the airport director, Kim Jones, um, commented early in November that alternative firefighting services would cost $10 million per year. And then later, the airport's, airport spokesman, uh, Michael Rickers, told the Cap Times that it would cost $20 million per year. Uh, we have not 
seen any calculations on how they're coming to those numbers. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem like they've done thorough fact finding. Um, so the the Dane County Airport seems to be very afraid of losing the firefighting services provided by the National Guard. So I think they are being bullied and in turn are passing that along to the, the Board of Supervisors. Mm-hmm. So what happens if the, um, if the board um, buckles down and um, agrees to the JUA as it is currently? What, what, are the, what, what does that mean to us? And we have only about three minutes, so I also would like you to uh, tell people again how they can reach their uh, Board Supervisors. Yeah, so if, if the, the, board's, the Board of Supervisors does not take action on this clause in the joint use agreement, then the people of Dane County will be in a situation where we are drinking contaminated water that could cause growth defects, uh, other health effects, cancer, uh, polluting our lakes, our groundwater, and that we would also be stuck with a bill of hundreds of millions of dollars at least for cleaning up this problem, and it would take many, many years. So what we are urging people to do is to submit a comment to uh, the Dane County Board of Supervisors saying, please delay a vote on the joint use agreement until we have had time to get public engagement on this and until the county has had time to do its due diligence. Um, And if you want a really easy way to make a comment, we have a website set up and that is fightforfairness.us. There's a really easy tool that will Help you send a comment to your supervisor in just a minute or two. Yeah, and uh, I did use that website and that tool last night, and and you're right, it is easy and quick and um, well done. So um, if, hopefully not, but if the board does approve that, um, does it happen immediately, or how, how does that work? So the, uh, I guess there, there's two steps to approving it. So we would, we have the vote on Monday. So we're hoping that they vote there to delay it. And if they don't, then we could, we would still want people to contact the board of supervisors before the vote on Thursday. And then if the board were to vote to approve it, um, I would have to double check for you on exactly when the new joint use agreement would go into effect, but I believe it would be within the year. Um, and from there, I think the next possible recourse the people of Dane County would have would be possibly to continue to urge Governor Evers to intervene. Um, we could, I know that sometimes senators have influence in with the National Guard. We could ask Senator Baldwin to intervene. But if the joint use agreement is passed, uh, that will make our path forward much, much, much more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, Emily Park, co-executive director of 350 Wisconsin, thank you for um, joining us. Thank you for the work you're doing. And um, yeah, let's hope you succeed. Thank you so much. We all succeed if you do. Thank you. And thanks to Summer and Jade and Rick. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye bye.